dig into kind of a heavy subject today. And so I want to just kind of give you a heads up. You know, if, if you leave today feeling like, man, that was really heavy, uh, we don't normally do that. Uh, we don't normally do uh, that much uh, heaviness. And, um, and so, <laughs> so uh, it, let me just say, uh, not every sermon will be as serious as this one, okay? Uh, but we are going to kind of get into some serious stuff. And, and the reason is, uh, is that uh, this is stuff that God cares about. And this is stuff that we care about as a people. Uh, and so today's sermon is called, Why Should a Church Talk About Juneteenth? Why should we recognize this holiday? And what are we trying to do here? And what specifically are we as God's people called to participate in when we, when we recognize this holiday of Juneteenth? Uh, and I'm going to try and answer the questions, why do we lament? Like, why, why, why do we want to be sad? Like, what's the point of that? Uh, why do we talk about and practice redistribution? Right? That's, that's a word that can kind of trigger some people. Right? Uh, and why, why do we celebrate this? Why do we celebrate uh, Juneteenth, and why are we excited to maybe kind of start celebrating Juneteenth if we've never uh, celebrated before? And we're going we're gonna to hit a lot of scriptures today. Um, before we do that, would you pray with me real quick? So God, I just ask that you would be present. Lord, I pray that my words would be seasoned with grace. Lord, I ask that you would build our life on your love and that that love would call us into deeper righteousness, and that everything that I say this morning could be understood in those terms. God, as we continue to grow and move towards you, uh, I ask that you would give us strength for the journey, and that we could just be able to receive your grace and your power all the way uh, until we reach the end, and uh, the end that you have for us, and for our community, and for our family, God. We just ask for these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, to, to, deal with the first, uh, to deal with the first idea, this idea of lament, this idea of taking time to really grieve things that have been wrong or things that are actually sad. Like, why do we want to be sad? I mean, I, I, I feel like I come to church to get lifted up, right? I, I come to church to be encouraged and to be built up and to, uh, you know, have some kind of like more positive vibes in my life, right? I, why would I come to church uh, and, and have the intention of being sad <laughs> with other people? Like, what is that all about? That's kind of weird. It's deeply countercultural, and maybe some explanation of why we would do that. And so, uh, well, one answer is just this idea of solidarity, this idea that we find in the scriptures that New Testament communities really functioned as chosen families, that they were groups of people who were, dis, who were from different backgrounds, from, from wildly different uh, heritages, uh, different ethnicities, different races, different uh, biology, well, not that different biology, but you know what I'm saying, like just that, that people come from different places. They come from different, uh, different families and different families of origin, but in Christ, all these people of different families came together and were united into a new family. And these new families were, these new family bonds were strong. Uh, there was a new body. There was a new, uh, a new way of relating to one another. And we see that reflected all throughout these letters in the New Testament. Most of the letters that we're looking at are written by Paul today. But we look at Romans 12, you know, Paul is kind of encouraging this church in Rome 
uh, you know, just giving them lots of encouragement and saying, you know, do these things, be this way. Love must be sincere. And, you know, for love to be sincere, that means that you're going to cry sometimes. Like, if you really care, you're going to be open. You're going to be vulnerable. And when the people that you love are hurting, you're going to hurt with them. And so love must be sincere. We're supposed to hate what is evil and cling to what is good and to be devoted to one another in love and to honor one another above yourselves and to never be lacking in zeal, but keep your spiritual fervor, serving the Lord, and to be joyful in hope and patient in affliction and faithful in prayer, and to share with the Lord's people who are in need to practice hospitality and to bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse, and to rejoice with those who rejoice and to mourn with those who mourn. That in having solidarity in the family of God, we really experience things together. We experience things from a place of compassion, of really going through it together. In Galatians 6.2, it says that we bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. And then in 2 Corinthians, there's this whole passage about receiving comfort in affliction and, and, and this idea of sharing in the suffering, but sharing in comfort, comforting each other as we suffer and suffering so that we can receive comfort in order to comfort others who suffer. And it says this in, in, in verse 3, it says, Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of compassion and the God of all comfort, who comforts us in all our troubles so that we can comfort those in any trouble with the comfort we ourselves have received from God. For just as we share abundantly in the sufferings of Christ, so also our comfort Comfort abounds through Christ. And if we are distressed, it is for your comfort and salvation. If we are comforted, it is for your comfort, which produces in you patient endurance of the same sufferings we suffer, and our hope for you is firm, because we know that just as you share in our sufferings, so also you share in our comfort. So we really see this, this theme of solidarity just woven all throughout the New Testament, and these scriptures speak to us about what it means to live in community with people who are suffering. You know, the other reason that we lament is that it is something that Jesus modeled for us. And sometimes the truth is just sad. Sometimes the truth is sad. And I'll just say something that uh, you have to take with a grain of salt. This isn't the only thing I'll ever say about the subject of mental illness. And frankly, I'm not a psychologist or any kind of a doctor. I don't I'm not speaking about diagnoses. I am in no way qualified to diagnose people. Uh, I'm, not, I'm, not, I'm not saying medication is bad. I'm not saying that there should be stigma on mental illness. Please don't understand me to be saying any of those things I'm not saying. But I will say that a lot of people increase their anxiety and hurt their mental health because they are afraid or unwilling to just be sad. Sometimes we just need to cry it out. Sometimes we just need to grieve. And our, a lot of our anxiety as people revolves around and, and is really kind of oriented around this idea of avoiding that experience. And a lot of evil has happened in the world in an attempt to avoid that experience, to avoid 
emotional pain, to avoid being sad. I don't want to face it. Uh, and so I'll, I'll be anxious because I don't want to talk about what really happened. I don't want to deal with the truth because the truth is sad. But Jesus modeled another way. Jesus modeled uh, a way of vulnerability, a way of honesty, a way of really being able to be a frail human being. Though he was himself God, he and somehow uh, through the incarnation took on the weakness of mankind. He became fully human and experienced all the pain that we experience. Isaiah prophesied about this in uh, chapter 53 of his great work. He says he was despised and rejected by mankind, a man of suffering and familiar with pain like one from whom people hide their faces, he was despised. And we held him in low esteem. And surely he took up our pain and bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, and afflicted. It says in John chapter 11 that Jesus wept. Of course, that's in the context of the Lazarus story. You might remember that from a few weeks ago if you've been tuning in or listening or you were here. We talked about how Jesus wept over his friend that he was about to raise from the grave, but Jesus enters in to pain with people. He's not afraid of it. He's not, he's not trying to protect himself from the suffering of others. He, he kind of runs headlong into it with compassion and saying, I want to walk through this with you. I want to help you carry this burden. I want to be with you as you struggle through this, as you work through this. We also see that Jesus laments even over a whole city. He kind of he kind of uh, uh, cries and, and is disappointed in the injustice and in the, and in the bad response uh, that his people uh, have to the invitation of God to embrace his agenda and to embrace his kingdom and his rulership. And it says in Luke 19, that in verse 41, as he approached Jerusalem and saw the city, he wept over it. He's lamenting over the city and said, if you, even you had only known on this day, what would bring you peace? But now it is hidden from your eyes. The days will come upon you when your enemies will build an embankment against you and encircle you and hem you in on every side. And they will dash you to the ground, you and the children within your walls. They will not leave one stone on another because you did not recognize the time of God's coming to you. That Jesus laments the sinfulness of his people. He laments the sinfulness of the people who should have been the most receptive to him, who should have been the most ready to do his will, to, to recognize who he was, to enthrone him as king, and to celebrate him, and to obey him, and to bring healing to the nations, and to, uh, to be the kind of person who exudes God's healing and love to the world, this should have been the way that God's people were, and they were not in Jesus' day. And Jesus' response is to weep, to be sad about that. And so often, especially as we look into the history of our own nation, there's a lot to cry about. There's a lot to look at and to say, this is not how it should have been. This is a tragedy. And this was wrong. And so much of the anxiousness in our culture, so much of the fear and the, just the fever pitch of, of you know, 24-hour news cycle, 
all of that, so much of the anger and the frustration and the hatred really revolves around this unwillingness to acknowledge what really happened. Because if we have to acknowledge what really happened, then we might have to acknowledge uh, some level of participation in what happened, some level of guilt or shame related to things that have happened in our culture that we have thought wrongly or that we have been part of or supported something that was unjust and that affects how we view ourselves. Now, as Christians, Christians ought to be the people who are the most easy to learn about a personal failure. Christians ought to be the easiest people to confront. We ought to be the people who the most are ready to say, oh, wow, I was wrong about that. I have thought wrongly, or I have uh, been selfish, or I have not understood your pain, or I have not cared for you the way that you deserve to be cared for. I have not loved you, my neighbor, as I love myself because, and it is easy for me to say that because I know that if I had done those things right, that wouldn't justify me before God. The only thing that justifies me before God is the love of God poured out through Jesus Christ on the cross and his unrelenting, furious love that chases me down and changes me. It is not something that I do. I don't earn my way into heaven by being socially conscious or kind or good or righteous. I earn my way into heaven. I, I don't earn my way into heaven. Jesus earns my way into heaven through his righteousness, through his goodness, through his blood shed on my behalf on the cross. And so I can be corrected. I can learn things. I can grow. I can change. And I can do that from a secure place, knowing that if I admit that I was wrong or I thought wrongly or I didn't understand, that I will do that from a place of being loved and accepted by a God who chases me down with his love. The gospel should be able to change us and to make it safe. I think it's important for us to lament as a church and to engage in the practice of lament at church because church can and should be a place where it is safe to be sad, where it is safe to grieve terrible things that have happened, and maybe even our own sin and the, own, and, and the terrible things that we have done, to be sad about those things, too, and to confess our sins. Confession and lament, they're connected. They're not always the same thing, but they're often related just because of who we are and the world that we live in. And church should be a safe place where people can be sad, and to be sad about things that happened. And so we're going to lament a little bit today, and we're going to talk about some history. And so I just want to kind of give us a real brief, completely inadequate, not exhaustive history lesson of just some national history. When we think about the timeline of America, especially as we approach the 4th of July holiday, uh, we need to understand that people were here a long time before uh, America was a country in the British colonies and all kinds of other people, you know, settlers from Germany, settlers from Spain, settlers from all over the world were coming to, uh, coming to America to seek opportunity, often at the expense of the people who are living here. 
but, uh, but, but that was going on since, uh, since 1492, right? And then American slavery, or the institution of chattel slavery, uh, started in the United States in 1619. And so particularly, uh, that would be the, the enslavement of not only African Americans, but uh, of people, not only of people from African descent, uh, but, but uh, some other people, but, but it kind of quickly morphed and focused on uh, just people with black skin. Uh, because that was a really easy way to tell who was who in society, right? You could, you could easily catch a runaway uh, based on skin color. And there are other economic factors and there are other, other reasons for that. I, I won't go on to all the complex history, but, but I think it's important for us to be aware that slavery is older than America and went on for many years before America was founded. Uh, you'll see right there, I've got it highlighted. I kind of added to this image I stole off the internet. July 4th, 1776. That's the, the day that many of us, and I, I myself, celebrate as Independence Day. That's the day that we celebrate that uh, America threw off British oppression, right? We, re, we rebelled against the king. We declared our independence, and we became independent when we declared it. When Thomas Jefferson wrote his letter and sent it off, that was on July 4th, and so that is the the day that we ratified, or you know, some, some founding fathers, some people signed a document that said we're free now. Uh, and, uh, and so we count that as the birth of our nation. We count that as the birth of America. Happy birthday, USA, July 4th, 1776. But let's just talk a minute about who was really independent and who was really free on that day. And let's think about that just for a moment. As not first with our identity as Americans, but with our identity as believers in Jesus who worship a king who was slain. Who worships, we, we are people who our primary allegiance is to Christ. And let's think about it in that lens, understanding that history of slavery. And let's think about who really became independent on that day, who really became free. Now let's think about the person who wrote that Declaration of Independence for a minute. Let's think about who Thomas Jefferson was. You know, Thomas Jefferson wrote some really inspiring words, uh, a, a lot of words that I deeply agree with. In the Declaration of Independence, it says that, uh, for we hold these truths to be self-evident that uh, all men, I, I would include women in that as well, but all men are created equal and endowed by their creator with certain inalienable rights. Among those are life and liberty and the pursuit of happiness. You know, I would say yes and amen to that. I think that God has given every human being dignity and that people ought to be able to experience that dignity and ought to be able to, you know, have a chance to live a good life and that we ought to have equality and that because of that, that people should have rights. I I think those are good things. Those are good ideas. That is a great thing to celebrate, and that is wonderful. But I got to tell you, the more I learn about Thomas Jefferson, the less I like him. I'm just being real honest. Like, first of all, first of all, do you know he tried to? Do you know he tried to rewrite the Bible? He, did you know that he he published a version of the Bible that was only the New Testament? Uh, so he said Jewish stuff, nah. And uh, and the other thing he did is he took out all the miracles. Because he thought, oh, this is, come on, you know, that's, that's, that's for those backwards, uneducated, poor, you know, uh, you know, stupid people. 
Only stupid people believe in a God who actually acts in history. Uh, that's a bit beneath us. And so we're, we're enlightened, we're intelligent, and so we can take the moral teaching of Jesus. We, we like that, at least selectively applied. We want to apply that, and we want to have the moral teaching of Jesus, but we don't want to have any of this stuff about God, really, or authority, or power, or a, or a clash between demons. Who believes in actual literal devils? How quaint and pathetic to actually believe in real spiritual powers. And, uh, and so for those reasons, I have some pretty serious disagreements with Thomas Jefferson just right off the bat, because you don't get to rewrite the Bible. I'm sorry. Like, uh, that's not cool, man. Uh, <laughs> like, God is real. Spiritual powers are real. There are real demons and angels, and God does act in history, and uh, it's true, man. Uh, deal with it. But then, you know, I think about, uh, I think about him writing all those inspiring words while owning people. And just some of the dark and disturbing history of the things that happened at his estate. Um, and particularly, I've been watching this show High on the Hog, uh, which is on Netflix. It's a, it's a food show, uh, but it's actually a really cool food show because it kind of uh, is, is from a black perspective and kind of traces uh, the African-American influence on cuisine in America. And so it, it kind of stirs in history and how that is related. And so uh, Thomas Jefferson had a cook uh, who was really excellent at cooking. And this cook uh, negotiated for himself, and he, he said uh, he was a slave. He was owned by Thomas Jefferson. And he, uh, he had some renown because he would cook on the side and make, make a little money on the side because he was in such high demand, because he was such a skilled cook, uh, having grown up with the resources that Thomas Jefferson had available to him. And so then when this cook uh, wanted to negotiate to, to, um, to, to get his freedom, uh, Thomas Jefferson made a deal with him, and he said, well, I'll let, you, I'll, let you, uh, I'll let you purchase your freedom. I'll let you go free, uh, but you have to, you have to train and, and replace. You have to replace yourself. You have to train your replacement. And then Thomas Jefferson said, uh, your, your younger brother will be your replacement. And so uh, this cook did actually buy his freedom from, from Thomas Jefferson, uh, but uh, at the cost of being ensured that his brother would live in slavery for the rest of his life. Um, the cook later uh, kind of took to alcoholism and eventually drank himself to death after he was able to purchase his freedom. But Thomas Jefferson kind of did that to that guy, right? And he's on our nickel and our $2 bill and has a nice big monument in Washington, D.C. You know, you might be aware, uh, so maybe you're looking at this graph, and if you're a real history buff and you're looking at things and you see 1965 as the end of slavery, you might be aware, if you're really dialed into your history, that Abraham Lincoln uh, made the Emancipation Proclamation actually two years prior on January 1st in 1863. That was when uh, he gave that famous speech and said, uh, you know, we're going to abolish slavery. And the 13th Amendment was uh, passed and, and, and abolished slavery, which was previously written into the United States Constitution. Uh, but the 13th Amendment amended the Constitution and pulled that out. But it wasn't until June 19th in 1865 in Galveston, Texas, that that emancipation actually became a reality 
uh, for all enslaved Americans in the United States. It took two and a half years just for that to actually take effect as the, as the war was actually winding down and for news to actually get to every, uh, every plantation and for every, for every enslaved person in America to actually be freed. Uh, that didn't happen for another basically two and a half years in, in 1865. And so then immediately after, after that happened, there were, some, there were some developments. Many people were able to uh, use their freedom to be able to do good things. Right around 1900 and 1906 here in Springfield, Missouri though, uh, there was a mass exodus, there was a mass leaving of African Americans due to a lynching that happened on the square uh, and some Springfield police officers were involved in that lynching. Uh, and so in that yellow period there between uh, 1865 and 1954, uh, you had segregation, right? You had all these enshrined racist policies. You had a lot of just uh, off the books, extra legal persecution of black people uh, because of the inherent racism, because you can't actually just legislate morality. People have to have transformed hearts too. Um, and and so there was a lot of terrible things that happened, including here locally, in our own local history. Not just, not two or three hours down the road in Tulsa in 1921, uh, you might be aware, maybe you learned about this in school or maybe you didn't, uh, there, there was a thriving uh, black economic sector in, in Tulsa, Oklahoma, uh, around Greenwood. It was kind of the black Wall Street. And so there was a community of primarily uh, people of African descent who were doing well financially, and so they had a healthy business and life and all these things. And basically, just because of the racism of the white people around this community, uh, there was like a mass massacre, uh, a, dis a, a complete destruction uh, of, that, of that neighborhood of Greenwood. And uh, a lot of people never learned about that. In school. I never learned that about, about that in elementary or middle or high school. Uh, or even college the first time around. I didn't learn about that uh, until I went back to get my certification uh, for, for teaching math. That was the first time I had ever heard of that in my late 30s. And so there was a lot of stuff that was going on in that little yellow period between 1865 and 1954 that was pretty terrible. 1954 is Brown versus the Board of Education. Brown versus the Topeka Board of Education. My sister actually lives in Topeka. I lived in Lawrence, Kansas, which is pretty close to Topeka, Kansas. Uh, interestingly, Topeka was almost the site of the, ini of the initiation of a, a, a Pentecostal revival. A lot of people count Azusa Street in Los Angeles as the, as the place where the Pentecostal movement kind of, or the third, or this wave that we're kind of enjoying of the Pentecostal movement in recent history. A lot of people count Azusa Street as the origin of that, but you might not know that there was an outpouring of the Holy Spirit in Topeka, Kansas, uh, years prior, um, but it basically didn't go anywhere because the people who got baptized in the Holy Spirit uh, were too racist, and uh, and they, it didn't it didn't go anywhere. Uh, they they banned uh, Black Americans from participating. But there was one guy, uh, Seymour, and I'm blanking on his last name right now. Anyway, the the guy who basically uh, started the Azusa Street revival. He was outside. Uh, the meeting place that was happening in Topeka, and that's the guy who went and started to preach 
uh, a, a gospel that included the gifts of the Spirit, that, that, that talked about speaking in tongues and healing and prophecy and all that stuff that's actually in the book that uh, maybe because of Thomas Jefferson's influence, Americans are, were less open to at that time. Uh, but, uh, but he was kind of the guy who was responsible for the Pentecostal revival that swept across, uh, swept across the world um, and that founded uh, both the Church of God in Christ and uh, a lot of Pentecostal denominations, including the Assemblies of God, uh, started uh, by this guy who was, out, was kept outside while the Pentecostal revival was going on inside in Topeka, Kansas. Well, anyway, Brown versus the Board of Education uh, in Topeka was 1854, and uh, I think that the justices uh, sided the, on the right side of history on that case, and so then schools became integrated, uh, or started to become integrated in 1954. Of course, there were riots, there were struggles, there were all kinds of resistance to just being able to go to school together, and to be able to use the same uh, pool and drinking fountain and all those kinds of things. Uh, and, and it wasn't actually, in fact, until 18, or 1965 that the Voting Rights Act passed, which actually uh, made it illegal to discriminate based on race at the voting polls. And so that was a full 100 years after the last enslaved person was freed, that the Voting Rights Act passed because of the work of Dr. King and other activists like him. Of course, Dr. King was assassinated in that green zone uh, in uh, 18, or 1968 uh, because of his work, not just for black Americans, but for, for everyone who was working uh, in garbage collection in Memphis, trying to organize better pay and better rights and better, uh, a better situation of living for those people. In the 70s and 80s, also in that green zone, green zone, uh, you know, we had the war on crime and we had the war on drugs and the policies uh, instituted and initiated by Nixon and Reagan during those times led to a whole lot of people being incarcerated and locked up. Uh, and then it was made worse when the Clintons came around in the 90s and they had a tough on crime uh, attitude towards things. And so don't think that I'm trying to just pick on one political party here. Uh, this, is, this is something that goes both ways and that, that many people have contributed to. But the Clintons' tough on crime and mandatory sentencing uh, policies at the federal level led to uh, this, what we now have is a real problem of, uh, of mass incarceration uh, in the United States that we're kind of becoming aware of and starting to deal with. Of course, in 2014, you might be aware that Trayvon Martin was killed completely unjustly um, by some jerk. I don't remember his name, and I don't want to say his name. Uh, and then Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri, very close to where we live, was also killed at the hands of police uh, while unarmed and while complying with their requests. And of course, we've seen over the last several years, uh, especially since that time, kind of a rebirth of a new civil rights movement that we are living in the midst of right now. Uh, and so if you think about that yellow period and you think about what you want to have been true about you if you had lived in that time when Dr. King was doing all of his good work and when John Lewis was doing all of his good work and when John Perkins was protesting in, in Mississippi and when lots of people were at work fighting the injustice of their day uh, whatever you're doing right now is probably what you would have been doing back then. Because we're in the midst of another civil rights movement 
right now. This is a moment that our country is having where we're really looking at how do we deal with racism. It has been brought out into the open again, and we're talking about it, and we're trying to do something about it. And so the sad thing, when we kind of get a little bit familiar with some of this history, of course, this is a real just sloppy crash course this morning, uh, is that, is that uh, you know, the church was often silent through much of that injustice. Worse than that, sometimes the church really kind of participated with, or at least went along with, right? Went along with what was going on. We have segregated churches largely still because of that legacy, even though that's not what we see in the New Testament. And when people get anxious and freak out about critical race theory, man, I got to say, you are really not going to like the New Testament. I'm, I'm just saying. Because bringing people together is what Jesus does. And destroying the dividing wall of hostility is what the Holy Spirit does. It takes an act of God. It takes a work of God to make it happen. But that is what Jesus is all about. And yet, so often in American history, the church uh, has really failed to embody that and oftentimes even committed terrible acts of atrocities and, and terrible racism and, and held the hands of the people murdering people based on race or ethnicity or something like that. And it's, it is tragic when the people of God, who, the people who should have been the most excited, the people who should have been the most active, the people who, who should have said yes to what God wanted to do, missed it and did not recognize the time of God's coming for them. Uh, and too often in American history, that has been the case. And I know that this is a bummer, and I don't honestly want to talk about this every single Sunday, but we're not going to be a church that does that. We're going to be people who know the truth and who emotionally deal with the truth. And so I want to invite us into a time of prayer and into a time of lament. We're just going to take a few minutes to pray right now and just kind of bring our feelings about this truth before God and to just stand with him and to know that God knows these things, that God hears these things, and to not try to fix it, but just to be with the Lord and just to recognize that what is true is true and to, to mourn with those who mourn and to recognize the truth of our history as a country. And so I just invite you to pray with me. Lord, we acknowledge that you are always good. And every person that you have made in your image, they are made good. They are made beautiful. They are made carefully and fearfully and wonderfully to reflect your glory and to rule over your creation. 
Every single person you have you've made was made in your image. They are formed by your hands, knit together in their mother's womb. But we, we as a nation, have not honored you or your good work. We have not honored your handiwork. And so today, we just take a moment to lament. We lament the, the mistreatment of Native people, of Latin and Asian Americans and immigrants, of Muslim immigrants, but especially our neighbors and our brothers and sisters in Christ who are living descendants of enslaved people. Our nation and its laws have systematically, intentionally, and brutally abused, enslaved, and mistreated people. And too often, the church has been silent or complicit or even directly guilty of participating in these actions. Oftentimes, even blaspheming your name and saying it was your will. And we are, like Isaiah said, we are a people of unclean lips and we live among the people of unclean lips. And maybe some of us in our thoughts and our attitudes, perhaps not intentionally, perhaps just swimming in the racist water that we swim in in America, perhaps we've participated in some of these things by things that we've said or done or by things that we have, have not said or have not done. And so God, we just come before you and say, we need you to help us grieve these things and to grieve them as we learn more about them and as we understand the experiences of our brothers and sisters in Christ and our neighbors who have experienced this mistreatment. God, uh, we just say that it makes us sad and it's not wrong to be sad. Lord, I ask that any of us who have sin that we need to confess related to this, uh, God, that we could receive your forgiveness, that we could repent, that we could turn away from the old way of living and embrace your agenda and your life. God, I just say, you know, I, I've thought and said racist things in the past. Not because I wanted to or that I meant to, but I just, I just did it. I missed it. God, I don't want to do that anymore. And so, Lord, as I continue to become aware of those things, Lord, I ask that you would keep me from becoming defensive. Lord, that you would help all of us to not be defensive, to not try to justify ourselves based on what we've thought, to not engage in virtue signaling or any kind of posturing to say, oh, we're, we're, we're good. But, Lord, to just become aware of our sin and repent wherever we find it. And to just stay on that path, to just stay on the path of saying, oh, man, I, I did screw that up. And I can admit that, and I can grow, and I can move on, and I can change because of what you're doing in me, God. So, Lord, we welcome that agenda that you have for us. 
we embrace your grace and forgiveness that we so desperately need. And God, we ask you to move in power in Springfield, Missouri, in this church and in our families and in our workplaces to bring an end to this legacy of injustice. God, this is a problem that is demonic in its, in its origins. And Lord, we need your deliverance to confront those powers. We need you to do something, God, because uh, for hundreds of years, people have struggled with this, and we're still struggling with it. You are our hope, and we place our hope and trust in you. So I just say and pray all these things in the name of Jesus Christ, our Lord. Yes, so be it. Amen. Well, I'm already going pretty long, but I still have a lot of things I need to talk about. So I'm going to try and move quickly through this next bit. Hey, we want to uh, take an offering, uh, a special offering, that we're going to give to a predominantly black church in town. And I want to talk about why we're going to do that, especially since we just talked about all this really heavy stuff. I want to make sure that we're clear on why we're doing that. And so first of all, I just want to say that we're not doing that because of guilt. This isn't like a guilt offering. This doesn't, uh, this doesn't, this isn't like penance. This doesn't like make us clean or, or worthy or any kind of that idea that like somehow by giving money that we somehow are washing our sin away. That's not it at all. But what we're going for here, what we're trying to say, the reason that we are, are trying to give to a predominantly black church in our town is that uh, families share their resources. That true solidarity means that, that what's mine is also yours if we are together. That in a family, we provide for each other and that we look out for each other. And so I'm just going to read, I'm going to just read this passage from Ephesians chapter 2. And then we're going to take up the offering. I'm actually going to skip the part from 2 Corinthians because we just don't have time. Okay. But it says, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sins, in which you used to live when you followed the ways of this world and the, kingdom of the, and the ruler of the kingdom of the air, the spirit who is now at work in those who are disobedient, all of us lived among them at one time, gratifying the cravings of our flesh and following its desires and thoughts. Like the rest, we were by nature deserving of wrath, but because of his great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy made us alive with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. And God raised us up with Christ and seated us with him in the heavenly realms in Christ Jesus, in order that in the coming ages he might show the incomparable riches of his grace expressed in his kindness to us in Christ Jesus. For it is by grace you have been saved through faith, and this is not from yourselves. It is the gift of God, not by works, so that no one can boast. For we are God's handiwork, or God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus to do good works, which God prepared in advance for us to do. And then we keep reading, and it says, Therefore remember that you who are formerly Gentiles by birth and called uncircumcised by those who call themselves the circumcision, which is done in the body by human hands, Remember that you, at that time, you were separate from Christ, excluded from citizenship in Israel, and foreigners to the covenants of the promise without hope and without uh, something in the world. Without God in the world. There we go. All right. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who were once far away have been brought near by the blood of Christ. And for he himself is our peace, who has made the two groups one. 
and has destroyed the barrier, the dividing wall of hostility. By setting aside in his flesh the law with its commands and regulations, his purpose was to create in himself one new humanity out of the two, thus making peace, and in one body to reconcile both of them to God through the cross by which he put to death their hostility. He came and preached peace to you who were far away and peace to those who were near. For it is through him we both have access to the Father by one spirit. Consequently, you are no longer foreigners and strangers, but fellow citizenship with God, fellow citizens with God's people and also the members of his household, built on the foundation of the apostles and the prophets, with Christ Jesus himself as the chief as the chief cornerstone. Friends, when we are reconciled to him, oh, in him the whole building is joined together and rises to become a holy temple in the Lord. And I think that might be the end. And in him you too are being built together and become a dwelling in which God lives by his spirit. Okay, I'm not going to preach that. I'm just going to let that preach to us. The word of God means that that when we come to Christ, we are reconciled to God, but also to each other, and we become one human family. And so we're giving out of that understanding that uh, our brothers and sisters in Christ who have a different experience than most of the people in this room, uh, they are still our family. They're still our brothers and sisters. And so as a witness to ourselves and to the world, we celebrate that by sharing resources, by redistributing. And out of a joyful heart, we give. And I'm going to encourage you to read... 2 Corinthians 8 and 9 on your own, uh, just because we don't have much time. I'm going to hand you this one, Ryan, because I've got to put some some money in the basket here. But this is going to go to Dwelling Point uh, Church, which is a church that our community has had a relationship with. We have worked with them in the past on some things, and some of us know, kind of just through random personal relationships, people who are part of that church, but it's a a black-led ministry. Pastor Antoine, uh, who is a friend, I think I can say, uh, is, is uh, uh, just a wonderful uh, guy. And so, yeah, we'll just pass that basket around. Um, and this offering, everything that goes in this basket, whether you put it in an envelope or not, um, is going to go, and we're just going to give it. We're just going to give it away. We're just going to give it to our friends at Dwelling Point Church uh, as a symbol of solidarity, as a symbol of, of, of unity with our brothers and sisters in Christ. Uh, also, if you don't have any cash or anything paper to give, we will go ahead and continue to accept donations through our online portals. Just put Juneteenth in the subject line and the memo line, and we will get that where it needs to go. And then finally, uh, I want to talk just briefly about this idea of celebration. Okay? Why do, we ce- why do we want as a church to celebrate and observe and learn about Juneteenth? We want to celebrate Juneteenth because God is a God who liberates oppressed people. And what we're recognizing is the end of slavery in our country. That is something to celebrate. And while we lament all the injustice that happened after that and that continues to happen, it is good to celebrate the end of slavery in this country. That is a thing that should should be a national holiday, if you ask me. Like, we should celebrate the time when those fancy words that Thomas Jefferson wrote actually became a little more true, that everybody is created by God and and given rights and respect and equality before the law. And while that is a reality that is certainly still not the case even to this day, 
we should celebrate the end of slavery in America. That is a good thing. The Exodus narrative is the controlling narrative of the Bible. It is, a, it is the story where God leads his people out of slavery and into freedom. And it is the same story that Jesus tells by freeing us from our slavery to sin into freedom and liberty from that in his work that he did on the cross. And it is that that we celebrate and bring into uh, our present existence as we call that coming kingdom when everyone is free, when everyone is liberated, when everyone is able to enjoy the freedom that Christ created us to enjoy, uh, we welcome that into our, into our presence and into our community right now. So uh, I'm going to leave it at that. Would you stand?